Hello and welcome to the Transforming Society podcast from Bristol University Press. My name's George Miller, and I'm the editor of a new paperback series that BUP has launched this spring. Over the next few years, What Is It For? will explore the purpose of a range of institutions, beliefs, ideologies, and other phenomena that make up the contemporary world, from AI to veganism, nuclear weapons to the monarchy. Inherent in the series' concept is the idea that the answer to the question will probably be complex and up for debate, but that it's worth asking in order to think about how the future could be better. This is my third and final conversation with Rodri Davis, the author of What is Philanthropy For?, and in it we turn to the vexed question of tainted donations, which has become a very real issue for many charities and organisations. When does a source of a donation become too problematic to accept on ethical grounds? Is there ever an expiry date on the moral taint that can attach to historical wealth? And if a donor uses their money to whitewash a dubious reputation, is that just something we should accept as a small price to pay for the greater good? I began by asking Rodri if he could frame the problem of tainted money for me. I mean, the idea of tainted money is essentially the idea that there is, there is some wealth where the way in which it has been made raises such a degree of kind of ethical concern or moral concern that any effort to do good by giving that money away is going to be outweighed by the harm uh, that's been done in making it in the first place. And this raises questions about the legitimacy of of the donor in question and, and whether or not we should view them positively and view their philanthropy positively. But it also raises quite practical questions for any institutions, charities or universities or museums that are faced with donations that might come from a source that does raise these kinds of questions. And as you say, we just see examples of it happening again and again, probably with ever greater regularity, I think. One really prominent example in recent years has been that of the Sackler family who who owned Purdue Pharma, which was heavily involved in the opioid crisis in the United States. And the Sackler family had given lots of donations to artistic foundations and galleries and so on. And that, I guess, raises this nagging worry about philanthropy, that it is about burnishing reputations, that that philanthropists like to have their names on prominent high-status projects that will win them credibility with their, their peer group. Do you think that's a something intrinsically problematic about about philanthropy as it's practiced that this this desire to commemorate the the name and the reputation and and sometimes to uh, to whitewash a, a much more dubious reputation i think i mean the sacklers are, have become almost sort of poster children for tainted donations in in recent years and and interestingly i think one thing they've shown is that you know a lot of the time there is a is grey area around the idea of tainted donations. It's very rarely as clear cut as you know everyone agrees that some particular money is bad, unless it's outright illegal. In which case, actually, the decision is not very difficult because the law tells you what to do. The ethical questions come when we're trying to make more subjective um, determinations of, of whether money is okay or not. And I think the interesting thing for the Sacklers is that the public opinion shifted very quickly from you know, probably we've never heard of them. And if we have heard of them, we've probably heard of them because of their philanthropy and giving to museums and galleries and, and universities to 
hang on a minute, they own this company and this company seems to have been, you know, very uh, sort of culpable for driving the opioid crisis. And so their their reputations plummeted. And obviously there was an active campaign led by Nan Golden, the artist, um, to to get museums and galleries to disown and disavow the Sacklers, which was very successful. And many have subsequently done that, although although not all by any means. But I think the, the, the interesting thing to me about the Sacklers is the way in which they went about doing their philanthropy really flags up some of the key features that 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 are particularly problematic when it comes to the idea of tainted donations as you say as you say one is that they really wanted their names on everything and in in their case this wasn't just that they gave money and then gracious recipients offered up the opportunity to have a name you know they demanded it and stipulated it from the outset so it was very clearly part of a sort of considered effort to burnish their their reputations um, they also attached very strict strings to, to them. They were very clear about exactly how money had to be spent. So there was very little latitude on the part of the recipient organisation. And those are kind of really big alarm bells for me because I think the question of whether or not it's okay to take tainted money is always a difficult one. But where the donor is clearly getting a reputational benefit from it and they're also exerting a large amount of power over how the money is spent – it's much more difficult in that case for the organisation receiving the money to argue that taking the money doesn't implicate them or make them complicit because it clearly does. They're involved in some sort of relationship um, that, that is kind of mutually beneficial one. So, so I think the way in which they've done stuff really highlights some of the key things to bear in mind when thinking about this issue of tainted donations. And am I being unduly cynical if I think that reputational benefit is just part of the terrain or are are there you know anonymous benefactors giving at scale out there and not insisting on having their names attached to things or having a you know as you say having a hand in you know strong directing hand in in how their money is spent there certainly are and i mean there are there are probably more donors that you've never heard of than than donors that you have and so actually those who've got their names emblazoned over things are probably in the minority I mean, culturally, maybe there's a difference there between the UK and the US. I think it's naming rights and the whole kind of convention around naming things is probably still much stronger in the US. And some, you know, some fundraisers would argue it's a vital part of their toolkit. Being able to offer these naming rights um, to to donors is is something that's, if it's not the only driving force behind getting people to give, because I, I think we shouldn't be so cynical as to assume that all big donors are only driven, you know, wouldn't give any of these gifts if they didn't get their names on things. I think it doesn't hurt. You know, often for for the organisation receiving the money, they, they actively want to show their gratitude. So they might offer up the naming rights, or they might, you know, more pragmatically see it as a way to get a bit more money. And that can often work as well. You know, from that point of view, it's it's something that that is still very much part of the landscape. The question that some people ask is whether we should try to square the circle a little bit by allowing donors to name things, but maybe we should try to shift to a norm where you don't necessarily get to name them after yourself. <laughs> you know, you're allowed to specify. And we've seen increasing numbers of examples of that. I think, you know, there was one a couple of years ago when the Obamas, uh, the Obama Foundation, I think, gave quite a lot of money to uh, a museum in the US and they, they chose then to name it after a, a figure from, you know, the, the history of the civil rights struggle. And you do see an increasing number of interesting examples like that which may be a kind of the healthier version of naming rights. The problem is not just about 
donations that have been made in the recent past, it also extends into the more distant past where you've got the legacy of a donation where an issue may become more problematic over time or it may come to light or that the source of the money was tainted. Then there are, it becomes even more complicated, doesn't it? Because it's not, it's not simply about you know, a, a, a present-day ben- benefactor, but a whole historical legacy and how to, how to adapt to that. Do you, do you sense that the sector is beginning to work out a way of at least addressing the questions and sort of thinking through these problems? Because they're clearly difficult, but are they intractable? <sighs> I think you're right. They are very difficult uh, questions, and particularly when you have the the sort of historical version of tainted donations, you you bring in in other dimensions um, that that are in themselves challenging. So you know, there's a question then about even if you acknowledge money for, at some point in the past was tainted, is there some sort of statute of limitation so that we kind of say, well, yes, it it was bad at that point in time, but it's 200 years later now. So what are we supposed to do about it? Or, you know, do you need to guard against applying the, the, the kind of the principles and morals of the present to, to periods in the past in an ahistorical way? I think, I think both of those things are true. I think in the particular case of money that is uh, clearly from the proceeds of slavery and other sort of extractive and exploitative practices, which is where a lot of this debate is focused, I think most people, not all people by any means, would agree that we definitely think that slavery is bad these days. And that even looking back into the past, we need at the very least to understand that and to acknowledge it. I think that where the discussion, the interesting discussion is now is kind of what that actually means in practical terms, because I think that some of it can be about renaming things or removing statues of people. And that that in itself is obviously a hugely thorny area. But there's always a danger that that's a bit tokenistic as well. And I think people who are pressing the philanthropy sector to do more on this would say we need to go beyond that and think about how you can make reparation in some way. And I think that is that is a contentious issue. And I think what that looks like is far from clear. But there are some some philanthropic institutions are really kind of digging into their own pasts and, and facing up to some quite uncomfortable truths about them and figuring out what to do about it. And I think, you know, it is one of those cases where sunlight is definitely the best disinfectant and, and the starting point needs to be that we at the very least understand what the issues we're dealing with are and then all try to sort of figure out together what the best way of addressing them is. Do you think there's still work to do when it comes to due diligence on the part of recipients? I mean, I'm just wondering... Was there a point at which taking Sackler money, recipients should have been aware, actually, that it was tainted rather than discovering it further down the line? Again, just using that because it's, as you say, it's kind of a a textbook clear case. But do you think maybe the sector needs to look a bit harder at the sourcing before before accepting or is that is that already well underway? I think I know I think that is true and I mean certainly the the Sackler example is particularly timely I know there was a story only this week in the Financial Times revealing that actually a number of institutions affiliated with Oxford University continued to take Sackler money well after the point where most people had kind of agreed that that, that was a, a no-no I think you know if you if you zoom back a, a few years before that there would have been a point at which people were starting to be aware that there was something not right about the Sacklers and something questionable about their wealth 
and that uh, you know then the question about whether or not to take their money um and there's a different question about whether to try and return money which is actually legally very difficult versus not taking any more money in the future that becomes a very tricky ethical question you're weighing up the reality of money being on offer which for many sort of cash strapped organizations is is no you know small thing versus the potential long term reputational damage you might do to your organization by continuing to be seen to be part of that relationship and that's a very difficult decision to make i think also you know if you if you move it away from the sacklers and and assume that there are maybe other people and other philanthropists at the moment who are still giving who might be the sacklers of the future some people would argue that today's tech moguls, you know, will 15 years or 20 years down the line, will look back at some of them and say, wow, we, you know, we shouldn't have been taking that money. But it, the difficulty for charities and non-profit institutions when it comes to due diligence is expecting them to be sort of to take a lead in in deciding those questions and making determinations about whether or not money is okay when the rest of society hasn't done it seems to be putting an unfair burden on them because if the best efforts of of the press and and uh, and kind of you know society as a whole can't determine that this money is tainted in some sense expecting a a small charity particularly or even a large institution like a gallery or a museum or or a university to do so that seems an unfairly high bar to me but that doesn't mean they shouldn't make more efforts to do that due diligence when when often you know there is information out there that they could be drawing on. Rodri we've just scratched the surface of some of the really important meaty issues that you cover in your book I just wondered in conclusion what do you hope a reader when they finish your book will take away from it what do you hope they'll be left with? I'm not expecting for a moment that anyone will feel as though they know everything there is to know about philanthropy. My hope, in a way, I guess, is two things. One is that they they feel like philanthropy is much more interesting than they ever gave it credit for, and they would like to find out more. And also that some of these questions that they may have thought were very clear-cut and had easy answers, actually, you know, there's often another side to them or reasons to sort of think they're more complicated. So if anything, you know, you might come away knowing less about what you think about these things than you did when he started, but, but hopefully in a good way. That was Rodri Davis, whose book, What is Philanthropy For?, is available now. There are more details about it and the other titles in the series on the Bristol University Press website at bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. That's it from me for now. So thanks for listening and goodbye.